Today's scripture reading is found in two spots. Um, First, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, followed by Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Genesis. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. If you're new or visiting today, uh, for the next few months, we're going to look into a topic, uh, the topic of what the Bible says about marriage. Now, I know there are some of you who are thinking, why is Metro focusing on marriage when there are such a good amount of people who are not married at our church? I'm glad you asked. Um, One is because it's in the Bible. And the Bible doesn't say you can choose for yourself what what topics are relevant to you. Because marriage is in the Bible, it's important. And it's actually more dangerous to avoid topics simply because you don't feel in the moment that they're not relevant to you. Secondly, there are many here who are single who desire to be married. But if you're honest... It's an over-desire. And you have an almost unhealthy perspective or unhealthy view of marriage. And you're constantly looking to get into a relationship with somebody in the opposite gender. So it's really important then right now to develop a theology of marriage, a perspective, a framework of marriage based on, what, on the wisdom of the Bible and what it says about friendships, what it says about dating, what it says about marriage. Uh, thirdly, uh, there are people here with broken marriages separated, divorced, just great losses. Your marriage may be hurting right now. They say around 50% of uh, married Americans and marriages end in divorce. The reality is that um, the number goes up. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. 73% of uh, third marriages end in divorce. And this is as of 2023. So the wisdom of the Bible is so important to heal and to be able to move forward with clarity and with hope. 
Now, today, we're just looking at an overview. I'm going to lay down some tracks uh, for us, and then we're going to actually take that journey over the next five weeks. It's a very limited time. We're not going to be able to cover a ton, but we're going to hopefully arrive at some new destination, and you're going to see several things, five things. One, you're going to see the purpose of marriage. Two, the power of marriage. Three, the priority of marriage. Four, the partnership of marriage. And lastly, of course, the beauty of marriage. You're going to see the purpose, the power, the priority, the partnership and the beauty. I was looking through thesauruses for a fifth P word. I just couldn't do it. And so, um, you know, I went, maybe there were four B words. I was going back and forth. We're just going to go with this, okay? <clears throat> First, we're going to look at the purpose of marriage. In Genesis chapter 1, we just read it in verses 26 to 27. God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. That's what it says. Now, God created us in his own image. By nature, by nature, God himself is community. He says, let us make man in our likeness, in our image. That's what he says. He's talking about God the Father, God the, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the oneness triune God, the Trinity God, right? This is the most intimate friendship. This is the most intimate relationship. This is the most intimate partnership in the history of the universe. In the beginning, what is God doing? Day one, he creates. Day two, he creates. Day one through day six, he's just creating the universe, and he's doing it together, so God, he just doesn't enjoy community. He doesn't just have community. He is community. And every day, as community, he's creating. And he says, day one, he looks back and he says, it was good. Day two, it was good. Day three, it was good. On and on and on. At the heart of creation, what do you see then? The most intimate friendship. The most intimate relationship. And there's joy. It was good. It was good. It was good. And we are created in his image. So by nature, we are designed to be intimate. We are designed to be in friendship. We are designed to be in partnership, the most intimate of partnerships, as intimate as you can be. Because God is community, the best way to reflect, bear the image of God is in the context of community. What that means is three things. One, relationships are really just a part of who we are. You know, it's, it's why we need them so badly. It's why we pursue them so badly. In a generation where, you know, social media has taken over, AI is now rising and increasing at a rapid pace, where we've practically humanized these created things, scholars are saying that we are the loneliest generation in the history of the world. Loneliness reflects a need to bear God's image as community. Secondly, it's why relationships, particularly marriage, can be an idol. What is an idol? Simply put, an idol is anything that functionally becomes more important than your relationship with God. It often becomes a replacement for God. An idol is anything that functionally becomes more important than your relationship with God, and so you end up working for it and working and just placing way more emphasis on your relationships with people, on their beauty, on their, their approval, on their acceptance, on their love, on their intimacy instead of God's beauty and God's acceptance, God's approval, God's love, and God's intimacy. And the Bible says anytime you do that, idols always lead to brokenness. They always lead to ruin. 
Community is good, but if you're looking for community, if you're looking for marriage as just a cure for your loneliness, you could end up even more lonely. Why? Because you've replaced love, capital L, love, you've replaced love with, you're saying, I'm going to look for love, I'm going to find love somewhere else. You see that? You replaced intimacy, capital I, intimacy. This God is intimate by nature, and yet you replaced him with, I'm going to look for intimacy somewhere else. I need something else. You see that? Thirdly, the, the purpose of any relationship, the purpose of community then, is to help one another become better image bearers of God. You're created in his image. You're created to reflect the image of God, which means the gospel enables the possibility of real friendships, genuine, lasting, fruitful relationships. And marriage is the most intimate. You know, they, marriage, they say, it could be defined by having a sexual relationship, by having children, but the thing is, before children, and even long beyond even just a sexual relationship, marriage is the most intimate friendship, the most intimate community that you could have. It's a beautiful reflection of, of, uh, a reflection of God as community, the joy of God. You see that? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, why does the husband sacrifice his life? Paul says, it's really because you're reflecting Jesus. You're to be more like Jesus. Why? Because it, what does Jesus do? Jesus makes her, the church, holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, without wrinkle, any other blemish, but to be holy and blameless. In other words, marriage is designed to make you holy to make you a better image bearer. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. And it's a, in that context of a relationship, it is powerful. And so that leads to the second point. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Hebrew word is out of fear of Christ. It's not the fear as in like a horror film or a nightmare, but it means to be completely captivated by the sheer beauty and love for something in your life. So in other words, what he's saying is that we are to submit to one another out of the awe of God, out of just a beautiful love for Jesus. And as a result, we serve them, we submit to them, we love our spouse. That means that the main pathology in any marriage is your self-centeredness. That is sin. It's really another definition for sin. You know why? Because you're no longer thinking about helping the other person. You're no longer thinking about empowering the other person to become a better image bearer of God, which is what we were created to be. You're trying to mold them now into your image, and that kills any marriage. In any moment in time, that is what's going to kill any marriage. Notice, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.21, he, he he's not saying that sum, you submit to one another out of reverence for each other. Oh, you're really great at math. I'm in awe of your brain. And so you should be the one managing the finances. Oh, you are such a strong. God has built you in such a gifted, you have such strength, and you're, you're so skilled with your hands. You should be the one taking out the trash. You should be the one doing the dishes. You should be the one uh, mowing the lawn and fixing the house. You are gifted in that way. Look, the difference between a Christian and, and a person who just grows up in the church and knows all the doctrines is this. A religious person, a person who grew up in a church, is still driven by fear and anxiety and that desire, that need to control his own life. We call that pride. At the base of that, that's pride. While a Christian, because of what Jesus has done for them, he lives out of gratitude, and so he desires to honor God. One of those people is enslaved and joyless. The other person is free and just filled with joy. 
It's very important, what I just said. If you're new or visiting today, very important. Friends, this is at the heart of everything our church believes. When you know that Jesus Christ has saved you, and so you are loved by God, you are embraced by God, you are accepted by God, the creator of the universe has thought about you in such a specific way that he has, he has paid the ultimate price by sending his own son to die for you. When that just captivates you and just grips you into, in, a, in a soulful way, and it's not because of anything you did, but because of what Jesus did. And it's not because of your great record or your merit, but because of Jesus' great record and his character and his record, his goodness. Oh, that's going to humble you. You had no skin in the game when it comes to your salvation. <clears throat> and yet at the same time, God loves you. God loves you. And he embraces you. Right now, in your sinfulness, he doesn't wait until the end of the story when you are fully worked out and redeemed because then you'd be the one working to make yourself perfect enough or good enough. But in your sinfulness, in your mess, when you know that God's love has just completely gripped you and it's not so much that the Christian life is not so much about uh, how strongly and tightly you hold on to your faith in Jesus, but how strongly and tightly Christ and his love is held on to you. When you recognize that, when that's something that becomes soulful and personal to you, it is life-changing. It is a life-changing work. There's a very unique dynamic at work because on one hand, you are utterly just weak and sinful and helpless, and yet there is a power in your life. There is a confidence and a power in your life. On one hand, you are incredibly humbled by the fact that it's your sinfulness that put Jesus on the cross, and yet on the other hand, there is a boldness and a confidence because it's God's love for you that put Jesus on the cross. And that love is what's shaping you and changing you. And one of the things it does is it kills your ego. You had no skin in an ultimate way. You had, there's no reason to fight. There's no reason to work to prove yourself anymore. It kills your ego. It kills your self-centeredness. You become selfless. You see that? You see, a legalist, a religious person will say, well, I have to serve other people. That's, it's my duty to serve. It's how I, I kind of distinguish myself from other people. It's how I feel a sense of worth when I'm doing stuff. I feel uh, like accomplished. I feel worthy. I feel better than other people because I'm serving, because I'm giving. You see that? But that kind of person is constantly comparing themselves with other people. They're judging and they're controlling and manipulative. They're never really genuinely going to serve. You see that? By the way, that kind of person, if you try to correct a person like that, I'm sure many of us have tried. You try to address a person like that, you almost, it's almost, you're almost afraid to address a person like that because they get so defensive, they bristle at critique, they never listen. But if you get the gospel, the deeper the gospel goes in, it's going to, I mean, you may be strong. You may be a very gifted person. But you're going to use your gifts to serve other people, not because you are so good so that people will be in awe of you, but out of your reverence for Christ. It kills your ego. You can submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's powerful. Love, more so than instead of feelings, love is a choice. It's a choice to die to yourself. It's a choice to serve other, people's at your, other people at your cost. Parents, I mean, parents here, you understand. 
I mean, you just give and you give and you give to your children. And all they do, what do they do? They just consume and they take up space and they mess things up. Everything you clean, they mess up. And they spend and they take it all for granted. And they complain and yet you just continue to give and give and give because you're saying, hey, it's at my cost. I want my child to thrive. And the more you give, you, find, you come to find that your heart, your joys are tied to their heart and their joy. Your joys are tied to their advancement and thriving. In other words, another way of saying that is your feelings of love proceed from your commitment to love and your acts of love. You see that? It's powerful. <clears throat> Excuse me. Third point is the priority of marriage. So way towards the end of this passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother to be united with his wife. To be united is to cleave. And so there's a dynamic. A man will leave. We are all called to leave and cleave with our spouse. To cleave is to say that I love you, I am committed to you, and it's based on a promise. What you're saying is I'm choosing to bind myself just completely to you. I'm going to bind myself emotionally. I'm going to bind myself financially. I'm going, to, I'm going to seal this promise by making a legally binding agreement in front of other people so that they see that I've made this promise to bind myself before I even do it physically. You see, nowadays in our world today, we try to do it physically before we bind ourselves legally. That's not what it says in the Bible. We bind ourselves legally, financially, emotionally, psychologically, in every way before we bind ourselves then physically. And what the promise you're making is, if I fail... Because I am cleaved to you, may it be devastating, may I be ripped apart, may my life be ripped apart if it fails, if, if I fail. You see that? Marriage is covenantal. Think about any contract. It's a choice. One, it's a choice. But what you're doing is you're, cho you're choosing to put your name on the line. It, you're literally signing your life away. And you'd only get into it if it's important to you. And the more important it is, the more binding that commitment. And so the very nature of a marital covenant is that it's not based on how you feel, but on how, what you've promised. It's not based on how you feel, but on the character and work of Jesus on the cross to shape you. Remember, submit to one another. That's the whole premise. Submit to one another out of reverence for what? out of reverence for Christ. You are trusting in the Jesus that has brought you two together regardless of how you feel in the moment. It's why the Apostle Paul begins this entire passage, this discourse, a beautiful discourse in Ephesians chapter 5 on marriage. He begins it with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The very nature of a covenant is based on trusting God has, has brought you together and God will keep you together. So, Wedding vows are covenantal. It says nothing about the now. It says nothing about the moment. It says nothing about your feelings because the Bible shows us that your feelings always conflict with each other. Your feelings always change. True love goes way further, way deeper. It says, I promise to be loving. I promise to be kind. I promise to be faithful. I will promise to cherish you regardless how I feel. I'm going to put my name on the line. I'm going to put my life on the line. I'm going to put everything I have on the line so that if anything fails... Everything I've placed on the line will be ripped apart. Real vows, they don't consider, what do I get out of this? That's selfish. Real vows consider, what can I give for this, to empower this? 
Biblical love, it commits your life, and so it kills your ego, restrains your freedoms, if it means the other person will thrive. You're tying your joy into their joy. You're tying your happiness into their happiness. Marriage is a commitment to an inescapable relationship. You can't just walk out. I mean, I mean, you can walk out, but not without major consequences. It's very, very difficult, even in our society. And yet, in marriage, if you remain, it reveals so much about you. It reveals so much about your sins. And it's designed in a way that you can't just walk away or hide away from them. You have no choice but to pray, I can't do this. God, I need you. Jesus, I need your help. And so you can't go in on your terms. That means that your loyalty, your love for your spouse has to be more than any other earthly relationship in your life. Couples, that means that your relationship with your spouse is a priority, and it's more of a priority than your relationship with with your children. In our world, that's upside down. Everything goes into your children, and then we wonder why our marriages are so broken and failing and hurting. You see that? That's not how we were designed. And so your relationship with your spouse has got to be the priority, more so than your children, more so than your work, more so than your own fathers and mothers. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his bride, to be united to his wife, as Christ is head of the church. You never, you'll never understand what it means to be a good wife then until you prioritize your relationship with Jesus. He has to be, I mean, he is the head of the church. He has to be your head. Men, if you desire to get married, that means that you can't become a good husband until you first learn what it means to be the wife of Jesus. You understand? He has to be your Head, you have to learn what it means to submit to Jesus. Your submission to Jesus, that is the ultimate priority because when it is in the context of marriage, you're going to grow in partnership, in a beautiful partnership. That's the fourth point. All of life, all of marriage is growing in the most intimate community, the most intimate relationship that you have as God shapes both of you into a very unique, very specific oneness. Two completely different people, different upbringings. I mean, the very fact that we're two separate genders and and we're in two different upbringings and yet you come together and almost colliding and then you become one. That means that all of life is an intimate friendship. It's an intimate partnership. Some of you have been single for a while and there are people who've been talking to you as if you need to get married, as if you're supposed to get married. Marriage is not the end goal. Marriage is not the end goal, contrary to anything that you may have heard, even from someone who's been sitting or standing at a pulpit. And right now, if you want to get married, the only way that you are going to have a rich marriage is if you have a rich, full life before you get married. That's what you should be pursuing. That's what you should be developing. We place so much emphasis in getting with somebody and we haven't prepared ourselves for the entire journey. We're trying so hard to get in the door and we haven't prepared ourselves well or healthily to just walk the journey. You see that? 
to have a rich, full life before you even get married. And you're called to that through faithful relationships. Look around. I mean, you have friends, deep, deep, intimate friends in your life. You were called to those people. And you were called to live out those friendships and those relationships. It's not just the training grounds for marriage. They are there, and they're going to be there through and through in the church, growing with you, walking with you, journeying with you, probably know you better at first than anyone you become intimate, more, more intimate with later on. You're called to faithful friendships because marriage is more than sexual. It's more than just legally binding. Long after that wedding, much more than just your sexual relationship, it's more an intimate friendship that builds partnership, a deep, rich partnership in everything you do. There's a commitment to a deep oneness in every way, which is why even the very act of sex is an intimate joining, an intimate union of lovers who partner in the most complementary way which is why it's designed only for people who've made that legal commitment, right? Who've given themselves first emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and, and financially and legally, and then they say, you know what? We consummate that in our union physically. You see that? The husband and wife relationship, it's such an intimate partnership. Because it's covenantal, because you're so committed to one another, to that oneness like a body. You're committed to one another. It works together. It's complementary. That means that on one hand, you complete each other. And on the other hand, you don't compete with each other. The husband and the wife, the male and the female, the Bible says they are equal. They are equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in worth. Both are equally redeemable and redeemed by God. And, and that means that they're also equally sinful. One is not more sinful than the other by nature. But it doesn't mean is that you are interchangeable. If you complete each other, then you have different roles in the home that fit together in a perfect way to become one. It's an amazing partnership. It's a beautiful relationship. It's a beautiful mystery. And Paul says that. He says it's a beautiful mystery, a profound mystery. Verse 32, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You got to think about what he's saying here. Paul's reflecting on marriage. And he says, you know, when you become one in marriage, it's almost like an experience of what it's going to be like to be face to face with Jesus himself. And as he reflects on that, he's just blown away. He's overwhelmed. He uses that word. He says it's a profound mystery. In other words, you're never really going to get marriage in all of its dimensions until you really understand Jesus' love for you and his relationship with the church. Paul uses the most intimate relationship in our lives and is reminding us over and over. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he says, submit to one another. There's a command, but then he says, remember Jesus. Verse 23, why? Well, verse 22, why? Uh, here's the role of the wife. Submit to your husband. Why? Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. I want you to remember Jesus, of which he is your savior. Verse 24, so wives, they have to respond. It's a respond as a reflection of Jesus, your relationship with Jesus. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Give up your life. Completely deny yourself in a sense. Why? Just as Christ loved the church, gave himself for Remember Jesus. Verse 28, so husbands, you need to respond. He says a lot more about husbands. We're going to get to that. He says, husbands, I want you to respond as 
you reflect on Jesus, as you look to Jesus, as you fix your eyes on Jesus, as you become like Jesus, I want you to live out in the same way Jesus' love for his church. Verses 29 to 30, why do you die to yourself? Why do you abandon your own self? Why do you abandon your selfishness? Because just as Christ does to the church, he feeds it, cares for it as if it's its own body. There's a oneness there. Remember Jesus, verse 31, as you reflect on Jesus, this is the reason why a man would leave his father and mother and experience oneness with his wife. And then he says in verse 32, he's just blown away by that. He says, this is profound. The Greek word is megas. This is just overwhelming and it's a mystery. But then he says, but I'm actually just thinking about Christ and his church. He says, that is Wow, I'm thinking about marriage at this level, and we're called to be like Jesus, and be like Jesus, and be like Jesus, and be like Jesus. And then he just gets overwhelmed. He says, wow, I'm just thinking about Jesus right now and what he's done for us. Do you see that? This is amazing. This is powerful. And he says, well, then how do you respond? Verse 33, each of you also must love his wife, and the wife must respect her husband. What is the power to do any of these things that the Apostle Paul says about marriage. Where do you get the power to be that selfless, to be that submissive, to be that loving? Over and over, Paul says, do this just like Jesus does for the church. Wow. Love like this just like Jesus does to the church. Wow. Over and over, he says that. Why? He's saying it's impossible to do any of this if you don't remember Jesus. To remember his relationship with you and his love for you and the way he relates with you and the way he gave himself for you. Jesus never took from his people. You know, a lot of us here, we, involve, we, we struggle with that physical and sexual side of dating. And you cross dangerous lines when you kind of get there. Think about it. Why are we called to make that legally binding promise before we ever even enter taking anything from another person? Because if you truly love somebody, if you truly love somebody, you will commit to them first, the way Jesus did. It's how we were designed. And so over and over, Paul's reminding us, and he says it's impossible to do any of these things if you don't remember Jesus. If you don't remember his relationship with you, the way he gave himself for you, you are the bride of Christ. You are the wife of Jesus. You are the one that Jesus chose. You are the one he married. And you are the one that he paid a great price for, the ultimate price for us. He gave himself for us. And he went to great lengths to step into our world and suffer, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life to save us. And all the while he says what? I promise to love you under any circumstance, till death do us part. Think about this. We say that at every wedding. We hear that at every wedding. And you hear that, and you say that, and you say, oh, it's so nice. And then you go home, and you complete some chore, and then you walk around like you deserve to be honored. You know, that's how we are. It's as if our spouse, like, owes us. Only Jesus Christ could ever say, only could he ever love us under any circumstance, and then say, till death do us part. And he's literally thinking about his death. Because all the while he's suffering on the cross, as he's bleeding and as he's dying, he's thinking about us, his bride. We were that joy. He's thinking about the criminal next to him. And he says, today you are going to be with me. That's what he's thinking about. 
Never once in the Bible do you see him saying, oh, it hurts. Oh, the nails. Are they rusted? I have tetanus. That's not what he says. He says, the blood loss. I'm suffering and dying. You never hear him saying that. But I'll tell you what he does say. He looks to John, and then he looks at his mother, and he says, John, take Mary as your mother now. He's looking at Mary, and he says, John, I mean, he's a close friend of mine. Take him as your son, Mary. He's constantly thinking about us. He's thinking about the people he loves. All the way as he's suffering and he's dying and he's bleeding, he's thinking about his bride. He says, he, not once does he say, you have no idea what I'm doing for you. I deserve to be honored. Look at me. You see me doing this for you? He doesn't say that. You know what he says? Father, they have no idea what they're doing. Forgive them. He's constantly thinking about us, gracious towards us, dying for us, because if he bleeds, he knows, then we are saved. If he dies, then he knows we get new life. If he takes our sin, then we are made holy, which is why we were created to bear the image of God perfectly, and he is the perfect husband, and he's going to go to the greatest length to make sure that we become better image bearers of his Father. And so in verse 26, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, though your sins may be like scarlet, they will be made white as snow. On the cross, Jesus Christ takes on our image. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We become radiant. We become perfect image bearers but in order for that to happen, he had to be shattered. And so on the cross, he is torn apart. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, this separation, this divorce is just ripping me apart. Why? So that my people can be united to me. And I will leave my father to become united to my bride. Jesus Christ gives us the power to surrender our selfishness because he gave us himself. And so the author of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why did he endure? What kept him going while he was on the cross? Because in creation, it's easy. He just had so much joy, and yet to think that on the cross, he was still reciting scripture. On the cross, he was still praying to God. Even as he was being forsaken, he was still praying. He was still worshiping. He was still united. He still craved and desired the one person, the center of his life. And yet, even as he was losing it, he was still worshiping God. What kept him going? And the answer is, you. You kept him going. Because his joy was wrapped up in your joy. And his, his, his happiness was wrapped up in your thriving. That's why. Just the thought of your salvation, just the thought of you today battling sin and having the power to battle sin, just the thought of that gave him joy to the point where that suffering was worth it. It was his priority. Not once did he look down and say, well, it's because, I mean, you have a perfect figure. 
or because you could give me a better life, or because I'm lonely, he suffered the cosmic loneliness. Did he do it for his feelings? No. Because with us, I mean, it was horrible all the time. We're constantly wandering away from him, constantly rejecting him and abandoning him. All he felt in this relationship with his people was pain. And yet he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. It is a promise. And I'm going to be true to it. You are worth it all. There is the power. Because when you reflect on that for you, when that becomes personal to you, it'll be a joy to serve your spouse. I mean, there are those of us here, broken marriages. Here's a lover whom the Apostle Paul says is our Savior. Let Jesus Christ redeem that brokenness. Let him redeem your life, restore your life. You, you will never lose him. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. Here's a lover who says, my promise is forever. Here's a partner who says, I will never let you go. I'm going to serve with you. We're going to win together. We're going to be victorious together. We will drink the cup one day together, the cup of victory together. I'm going to compliment your gifts with what I'm doing in you, and we're going to do this forever together. Verse 23, as Christ is the head of the church, remember Jesus, he says, of which he is our Savior. The gospel is the greatest love story of all time. There isn't a single love story that you will watch today, read about today, watch on TikTok today that wasn't derived in some way or points to in some way the greatest love story of all time in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unless you see Jesus Christ loving you, bleeding for you, dying for you, in a personal way, you will never be able to genuinely love another person. There are people out here, some of you, we're just looking for that perfect guy. You're looking for that perfect woman, and you're just paying a price. You were so focused on that, and you're missing the point. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Love him. Serve him. Don't take your eyes off of him. Be captivated by his beauty, his glory, his worth. Submit to him first as your husband, and you're going to know true love. It is a powerful love. It will be a priority for you. You will grow in partnership together. And it will be beautiful. And you won't grow weary. And you won't lose heart. Got a lot more coming these next five weeks. Let's pray together.